spend some time to really think about what is your narrative and how can you bring all parts of yourself, the good and the bad, into that narrative in a trajectory that makes you have impact to the work you care about. I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. Thank you, everyone, for continuing to listen to the show. Please support this podcast by simply subscribing, rating, and leaving feedback. This really helps others to find us. We love all your comments and read each one of them. Thank you to Zara Abraham, Hannah Jones, Tony, and On L for giving us a shout out on Twitter. On today's show, I'm so excited to have my good friend Andrew Ibrahim join me. Andrew's an assistant professor of surgery, architecture, and urban planning at the University of Michigan. When Andrew's not operating on people, he's the chief medical officer at HOK, which is a global design and architecture firm. Andrew went to college and medical school at Case Western University. He was also a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar at the University of Michigan. Andrew's research at the Interface of Healthcare, Policy Evaluation and Architecture has resulted in numerous publications, book chapters, and international presentations. Andrew and I believe that a creative mindset helps us to become better physicians. We talk about health in all design, failures in medicine, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Ibrahim. Andrew, welcome to Design Lab. Bond, good to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So you're my good friend, and I love your career path. You are a surgeon at the University of Michigan, but you also work at an architecture firm called HOK, and you're their chief medical officer of their healthcare division. Tell me why does a surgeon work at an architecture firm? Okay, great question, and great to be here, Bon, and I say I appreciate so much the work you've done to advance kind of health and design and appreciating the interface that those two have and the value at that crossroads. I think a lot of my decision about joining an architecture firm actually comes from my time in medicine. I'm formally trained as a health services researcher, and I write a lot of research papers about how to deliver care better. And I think one of the tensions is when you write these papers and you're doing this research is like, doesn't matter to like real frontline practice. Like if you were on the ground doing that work, does that like resonate? And so for me, it was really important as a researcher in healthcare to be like a practicing surgeon who understands the day-to-day realities of being with patients. And as I started getting into the architecture work and started writing research papers about design, how do we make better delivery systems? How do we design better hospital networks? It occurred to me that like, I actually don't like practice in that space. I don't actually know the real tensions of why some design decisions are made than others, what some clients complain about. And so it became clear to me that if I wanted to advance the actual work in how we actually design an architecture, it'd be really important for me to have a role in a firm. So I joined HOK about three years ago as their first chief medical officer. And part of it initially was what does a clinician have to say about the way we design hospitals and the way we deliver healthcare? But what was more interesting to me as I got further into the firm is getting to meet clients. And when I had this idea that I thought, gosh, the research is so obvious, the idea is so clear, how come every client isn't doing this? 
But then you sit in those rooms and you understand there's a lot of trade-offs to those decisions. And so being in a firm has actually been super important and informative to refining my design ideas. There's a couple of things I want to hit on. One, HOK is just a great architecture firm, right? They're And they're big. They're one of the top 10 largest in the world. And yep. they've been some incredible building. So maybe you could share a couple of favorite projects that you've seen from HOK. And also you talked about trade-offs. What are some pr- trade-offs that you have seen or these tension with trade-offs uh, that you've experienced in your time there? Yeah, great question. So let me talk about the trade-offs first, and I'll give you some practical examples from hospital design that come up pretty frequently. So if you read in healthcare literature and architecture, there's pretty good evidence that more windows, more views of nature give you better patient experience and maybe better outcomes. And there's also literature that suggests that increased lines of sight from nursing stations into patients' rooms are also improve the safety of the care of patients. So what, 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 what does that mean, increased lines of sight for those who... Yeah, uh, uh, great question. Yeah. It means that a nurse sitting at her or his station from wherever they are has the best vantage points directly into patients' rooms. Hmm. In other words, it's creating the lines of sights in a way where you can directly see into patients' rooms as frequently as possible. Like they so have the dis- un- unobstructed view of looking in right into a patient room. Exactly. Okay. So you would take that research and you could translate that into design solutions and say, we need more windows or bigger windows. And the way to achieve the lines of sight is instead of these huge, long, straight hallways, you create them on an arc mm-hmm. and you create a bend in the hallway so that at any given point, you could actually see into multiple rooms at the same time. So you may do that and start to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, we just implemented some good evidence and we now have more natural views and better lines of sight. And then you realize after that gets put into practice, if you go back to the building after it's occupied and you evaluate it, which a lot of people don't do, but it's the perk of being a practicing clinician working Mm -hmm. in these buildings, is you realize creating huge windows has some sustainability trade-offs. It takes more energy and cooling Mm. to maintain the temperature in that room. There are privacy trade-offs, depending on your environment outside, of what people can see into the patient's room. And now you're making additional investments in blinds and curtains. Mm. And so there are some initial trade-offs there. The hallway one wasn't obvious to me until I was on call one night and I was talking to some of the custodial staff And I said, hey, don't you just love these new buildings? And they're like, not really. I'm like, are you kidding? This is like beautiful, world-class. It's just beautiful to walk through. And the custodial person explained to me, he said, we've had to hire almost twice as many FTEs to clean these hallways because it's actually a lot harder to clear the floors of a curved hallway as opposed to a straight one. Oh, and all of a wow. sudden you realize that some of these design aesthetics huh. have some legitimate practical trade-offs that like, it may just be harder to maintain the space. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a little bit of an unknown in architecture and design of sticking with clients one year, two years, three years after a building's occupied mm-hmm. and kind of understanding like, hey, we thought this was going to be great. And maybe it had some of these intended benefits, but 
maybe there were some unintended consequences of maintaining the building, heating the space, mm. being able to clean it that we maybe didn't see initially. It's, yeah, often architecture firms are designing for day one of opening of a hospital or building, but they don't follow that building's progress over the years. We've talked yeah. about this before. It's like if we have developed a new intervention or a new drug yeah. and we release it, we, we test on patients on day one, but never follow them to see what the outcomes are. And that's yeah. maybe a little bit of what happens in the built environment space. Because one, the clients aren't willing to pay for that research, I think is one of the major reasons, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting if you're really interested in this space and you dig into it, you can't resist but read about the history of our professions. And I think one of my sort of surgical heroes or role models is a guy named Ernest Codman. He was a surgeon in Boston in the late 1800s at Harvard and this was right at the time when ether was discovered as an anesthetic and him and all of his peers were ecstatic. They're like, you mean you can actually put a patient to sleep while I operate on them? This opens like enormous opportunities. And so people were operating all the time. Like the explosion in surgery at that time went through the roof and Ernest Codman asked, Hey, these are all great ideas. I'm really excited about this advance, but do we know if these operations work? Like, are we doing good or not? So he used to go around the hospital with just note cards and he would keep track of patients. And it was very crude. He initially kept track of who died and who didn't. And it was very crude. And then if people had complications, he kept notes about why he thought it happened. Was it a technical error? Was it a judgment error? And so he went back to his peers, like pretty excited and said, hey guys, I know we've been doing all these new operations. I've been keeping track of them and here are your outcomes. Bon, half of your patients died and I think you probably shouldn't be doing these operations anymore. It doesn't seem to be working. And I think some of it's technical. I think some of it's judgment. And he was extraordinarily unpopular. Mm. At the time, remember, surgery was like a private practice and referrals were based on reputation. So nobody wanted to air their laundry out. So he was pretty maybe ahead of his time. That's super was- revolutionary. I mean, remember when New York State, maybe it was like over a decade ago, started sharing data on surgical outcomes? Yeah. And there was like a bit, it was very controversial because a lot of hospitals were not happy with that. Yeah. So his legacy lived on. I mean, he basically got fired from Harvard. At some point in his biography, ends up in Nova Scotia, like in isolation. And he comes back and he opens his own hospital that he provocatively titles end results hospital. And he commits at the end of the year to publish the results of his patients. He said, this many patients were cared for, this many got pneumonia, this many died, this many reoperation. And it actually became like the modern framework for measuring quality of surgery. And he famously on his deathbed said, it may take a hundred years for my ideas to be accepted. And embarrassingly, he actually couldn't even afford a burial because he was so unpopular and ran out of town. The American College of Surgeons about 20 or 30 years ago went back and found where he was buried, gave him a proper burial. And on his tombstone, it says, it may take a hundred years for my ideas to be accepted. And there are so many parallels to why Ernest Codman got resistance 
to measuring quality of surgical care and how he kind of fought through that to what I think exists in architecture now. Of course, no architecture firm wants to air out their dirty laundry. Like mm. Nobody wants to say, hey, the building we designed was the wrong size or, hey, another firm had to go in six months later and redo a whole wing of the hospital. Nobody wants to say that. But if you don't go back and study that, how are you going to improve the quality of your design? And so one of the big tipping points in healthcare, and I think it'll be the one in architecture, is in healthcare, patients and insurers started to demand it. So health insurers said, hey, if we're going to pay you for these surgeries and operations, we want to maintain some certain quality standards. Mm -hmm. And so I think it would be fascinating in architecture if clients in the RFPs, so the proposal request from firms said, hey, we want you to build this hospital tower, but we also want to know what's your plan one year after this tower is built to understand if it met all the goals and objectives that we set out in the initial design process. And that hospital systems made that a standard part of how they design and, and uh, create their hospital networks. And probably nowhere, probably at no time in the history of medicine do we see the importance of the linkage between the built environment and patient outcomes and safety for healthcare workers and during this pandemic. And thinking yeah. about the future of hospitals, do you have thoughts on what hospitals should look like based upon our experience taking care of patients on the front lines? Yeah, for sure. So I was in an interesting position during COVID to essentially be on the front line of COVID in the first wave where we were actually ran out of ICU beds. Mm. And all of a sudden we were transforming step-down units or regular floors into ICU capacity spaces. And you sort of realize- Before, that, I want to pause right there. So for those listening who don't have a sense of what a step-down unit is, a regular floor, an ICU, why is that so incredible for that to have happened? Yeah, exactly. So when you think about patients in a hospital, they have really different needs. And so in an intensive care unit, you need- um, constant monitoring of vitals. You may need a mechanical ventilator for breathing. You may need artificial pacing for their heart. You may need special medications that need to be very tightly monitored. And you may, as the case in COVID, need isolated ventilation to a single room. You certainly wouldn't want that in every room in the hospital. That's a lot of expensive resources. And then there are regular floors where you have kind of intermittent monitoring and you don't have those bells and whistles and a step down is somewhere in between. But what happens when you have higher acuity patients that you have to put into these other rooms? And so you, we started to realize in real time that much of our hospital design wasn't very flexible, that we actually didn't have mm. the ability to readily upgrade some of our rooms to make them able to take care of um, sicker patients. And so I think one of the strategies going forward is how do you get more creative about design in a way that in a pandemic or in a mass casualty or in any scenario where your demand for healthcare is far higher than what you'd expect, do you have the ability to sort of shift your resources in the hospital and leverage the resources you have to take care of those patients? So there are a number of strategies. I think a lot of them are tech-centered 
that can help make these rooms much more mm -hmm. adaptable. So you and I have both a love for medicine and design. I think we're like brothers from another mother. Can I think you... we're just brothers, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can you tell me about this journey for design for you in healthcare? Like, yeah. why, why are you so obsessed with this intersection of design and healthcare? And tell me about this fellowship that you're creating at University of Michigan, which I find so fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think we are probably similar people. I think one of us is in a more athletic surfer body bond <laughs> and the other is like in the nerdy library. Hey man, um, I see, I've seen you cross-country skiing. All right. <laughs> I hold down. Okay. I think what's interesting to me about design or what like underpins my motivation is leveling the playing field. When I think about my trajectory and how successful I've been, part of it is I work really hard and I care a lot about my work and I'm really passionate about it. But I've also been in environments where that's been amplified and supported. And had I been born in a different zip code, had I gone to a different college or had different mentors, I may have not been as successful, even if I worked just as hard. And to me, that gives me pause to think, who else out there is working so hard and doesn't have the opportunities that I did, but if they did, could add so much to healthcare delivery. And I think about that kind of from like my own initial view of how my career developed, but then I think about it kind of for our patients too. I mean, we have so much good data now, how much your life expectancy varies just by the neighborhood you grew up in. And as I started to sort of internalize a lot of those ideas, I realized a lot of that is your built environment. Like you're so shaped mm. by the place where you live and how that was designed. And so I said like, well, then who's designing it? Mm. Who is designing where the neighborhoods go? Who's creating the zoning policies? Who's creating these different equity strategies for mixed use housing? Who's designing these hospital floors for equity? And it sort of led me to design and architecture and one of the realizations I had there that sort of motivated the fellowship, and I think you, you embody this and share this well too, when you go into a design or architecture firm, it is some of the most innovative, creative people yeah. who come up with these interventions and ideas I never would have thought of. They're incredible. And it's just so inspiring. But when you start talking about data, and evidence and how you're going to evaluate that mm. there's kind of like a real silence in the room. And it's interesting because in healthcare, we almost have the opposite in the hospital. You can measure like anything, maybe to a fault. We yeah. are like documented and micromanaged down to the T, but we're maybe not the most creative people all the time. And so I've been interested in like, well, how do you take the best of both of those mm. worlds so I started a health and design fellowship that is specifically designed for architects, planners, or designers to come to Michigan for two years, get a master's degree in quantitative analytics, high emphasis on econometrics, handling big data, and use those methods that we've had in healthcare for years, but apply it in the design space. And then really get your head around, did it really matter how big the room was? Did it matter if there was a window or not? 
did we risk adjust the outcomes appropriately to know that this really makes a difference for patients? So for me, I think the underlying motivation was about like fairness and being able to use the built environment to level the playing field and then giving credit to these great ideas and evaluating them with real rigorous methods and data to know if they work. It's a very unique fellowship because it's with the Department of Surgery and the Architecture School at Michigan, which is a great architecture school. What did the Dean of the Architecture School think about this? Yeah. So Dean Jonathan Massey, I, I love him. He's a great role model. I, I love Jonathan. A, I, I a, met him at Design Vanguard in the oh, Bay awesome. Area about, about a year and a half ago. He's such a cool dude. And I think he is visionary in how he thinks about architecture because he, to have a robust school of architecture, you probably need a diverse faculty. You need some mm -hmm. people who are steeped in theory, who know the history, who write the books. You need some people who are deep in architecture practice, but then you also need people who shape architecture practice who may not be formally trained that way. So him and I were talking about potentially a class in like transportation. And we were like, well, who would we have like teach that class? And we were like, well, there's probably some architects of bridges and transportation that should be there. And he's like, I also want like the CEO of Uber to be there. I mean, talk about someone who thinks deeply and comprehensively about transportation. It's probably that person. Mm. And so in his view, he goes, if you could have something to the way we think about designing the built environment, then I want you in my faculty. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of like my foot in the door to say like, well, I think my work adds a lot to the way we think about health in the built environment. And it was in line with kind of the ethos. And he's hired a number of professors of practice, which are people who are like on the ground doing the work and bring that directly back to the school to give the students a real understanding of some of the day-to-day -day realities of doing design. I wish I weren't so old because I would probably do that fellowship. Yeah, you're in, man. I, like, <laughs> I saw you tweet about that. Like, man, if, I could, if I could convince Bond to just hang out with me for two years. I would love that. I'll do whatever. I wonder if I, it be a emer emeritus version of the fellowship or something. I, I want to shift gears a bit and talk about your journey to becoming where you are now. You and I both have immigrant parents. Mine are from South Korea. Yours are from Egypt. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I had this like extreme pressure to go to medical school and there was to become a physician and there was no other option for me. Did your parents put that type of pressure on you? I had more options. I could be a physician um, an engineer or a lawyer. So I got like a little, <laughs> I got the broader view. My parents were actually very reasonable and I had desires to go to architecture school from even like middle school. And we didn't have, I didn't have exposure to it in a meaningful way. And my parents, I think, and they're just really earnestness to be great parents said, we don't have any like mentors for you in architecture. We don't have anyone to give you advice. Like, what would you do if you weren't an architect? And I was like, well, I think I'd go to medical school. And they're like, well, we know a lot of people in medicine who could help and mentor you. And so the deal we ended up making, they said like, why don't you get into med school and then do whatever you want? So in like total type A nerdy fashion, 
I did like all the summer classes, the summer OCHEM, got into medical school by like end of sophomore year of college. Wow. And I was like, Jesus, I'm like a 20 year old. Like I can't even buy a beer legally. And I'm like <laughs> going to go take care of patients. It just seemed weird. So when I went to the Dean of the medical school, the Dean of admissions, I said, Hey, I'm so excited and like thrilled to be accepting the medical school, but I just like, don't feel ready. And she said, well, what would you do if you weren't a doctor? And I was like, ah, I'd be an architect. She's like, you answered that like pretty quickly. <laughs> and I said, well, like I've thought about it before. And she um, said, well, why don't you go do that for a couple of years and we'll like save your spot here. So I moved to London and I went to the Bartlett and it was super transformative. And looking back, that actually like changed my trajectory significantly because it anchored all these ideas about design and planning and the relationships of multiple stakeholders to create a robust public space, put all those ideas in my head before I went to med school. So of course, my natural response when I was in medical school was like, who are the architects in the medical school that do healthcare delivery and healthcare planning and think about regional delivery of care? And they're like, we don't have any architects here. And in my mind, I was like, well, there should be. I mean, this is like, there's a, a gap there. And so I guess I'm fortunate that I had good dean mentorship early that gave me the freedom for that space. But as I went further along in medicine, it just became more obvious to me how much more overlap we needed between those two fields. I had the chance to read this amazing article about you in Wired Magazine that was published in May. And I think it was like, it's over 5,000 words. It's a freaking it's like 10, long, 10,000 yeah. words. It's a long article and it is. Man, sorry to put you through that. It is. No, it was great. It gives you this early insight into the pandemic when you were taking care of patients in the SICU, the yeah. ICU. What I appreciate about that, that you were so honest and vulnerable about dealing with your failures. And I think physicians, especially surgeons, don't do that. And on the outward surface, you look at yourself and you're like a badass surgeon who's at a top program in the country. You're so creative and innovative. But so I really appreciate that. And I learned some things about you as well. And I try to be a little bit open with my failures too. I barely got into a good college because my grades sucked and I'm just not, not good at standardized tests. So I was a really good fencer though. So I actually got recruited to Penn to be on their fencing team. So that's actually, actually how I got into You're college. A fencer? I was a fencer. I, no I was a varsity idea. fencer. There's a I've teammate of mine who went how to the, yeah. a teammate of mine who went to the Olympics and but I remember when I got to Penn, I would get C's. Like I got a C in physics. I felt like a phony and just, it was very difficult for me to, like college was hard yeah. and med school was really hard for me. And so you had some struggles of matching into a residency program. And what was that like for you? And what did you learn from those failures? Yeah, it really sucked in real time for sure. To answer your question, let me make a confession. So I've never been a big TV person, but during the pandemic, I definitely started binge watching on Netflix. And one of the shows of us. <laughs> I got like oddly into was Forged by Fire. Mm. It is like the equivalent of Top Chef for like swordsmiths, where like these swordsmiths from all over the country come and they have like a design challenge to make this crazy weird sword from 300 years ago using like 
some weird aluminum they've never heard of and they have to figure it out. And part of the fascinating part about creating or working with metal is you have this real contrast that irony of putting yourself in some really hot flames and then immediately putting yourself in cold water. And when you go back and forth between flames and cold water, it actually tempers you and makes the sword stronger. And so the strength of the sword is actually related to your ability to go from a super hot fire to something cool. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about my number of failures, when the list is pretty good, it starts with trying to couples match, being engaged in another med student and like that relationship falling through, followed by like failing boards, followed by like not matching into residency. And the, that was definitely the fire. Mm -hmm. But then the flip side of that was I had opportunities to get out of that environment for a minute and to cool off, whether it was having a great mentor mm -hmm. who said, Hey, come do a preliminary year in surgery and just get yourself in the hospital doing the stuff you love. And if it's free, you'll know. And if it's not, that's okay. For people who said, Hey, boards aren't the best measure if you're going to be a good doctor or not, but mm -hmm. we can help you do better on your boards and we'll support you through that. And so I think being able to move from some failures to having support tempers you as sort of a, a strong sword. And so when it came to the pandemic and when I got called to kind of jump on this front line, it was very clear. They're like, look, there's a lot of unknowns. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be really hard. You're probably going to see people not do well in the hospital. And there's going to be a lot of moments where we're going to give you a break. We had five to seven days off at a time mm -hmm. after being on the unit for a week. And I couldn't help but think this is totally like creating a sword. You're in the fire and you're on the front lines and then you get a break. Um, you get outside in nature, go for your walks and do your thing and over and over and tempers you. But I don't think I would have been able to handle the pandemic as well had I not had those previous failures beforehand. Failure is not tolerated on this path to becoming a physician. And I hope this gives some listeners who are on that path some hope because people who enter into medicine are some of the most type A people in the world. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. We have to be in the 95th percentile at everything in order to yeah. make it past med school, residency training, getting a job. And we don't finish our careers till we don't finish our training till sometimes our mid thirties. That was in the case for, for me. Yeah, It is a Same. long, hard path. You did seven years of surgical residency. So for those listening, it's okay to fail. And these like failures can make us better. Yeah. I'd say one of the flip side of failures, I was reapplying for surgical residency. I thought I was doing great in my prelim year. And one of the people gave me feedback and said, Hey, I'm not sure you're going to match this time either. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're kidding. I've been like busting my tail. And I remember one day just going home and being like, I might be unemployed July 1st of next year. Like I like might not have a job. And in like a moment of like urgency, well, what the heck else can I do? So I reached out to my architecture friends. I reached out to my friends in consulting. And what I inadvertently had been doing was actually building up like a much broader network. Cause so I was like, geez, what if this like 
isn't for me. Mm. Um, I ended up matching into a surgical residency program, but in the meantime, had actually developed a much broader network of friends and peers. And so it made a ton of sense when I'm like, I have this really broad vision of health and all design and redesigning health beyond hospitals. I actually knew a lot of the people because that was sort of my other contingency option. And so uh-huh. I think it was a bit of a hidden blessing. I think one of the messages, I love your point about it's okay to fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a good McKinsey talk by a guy named Dominic Barton. He used to be the head of McKinsey. Mm-hmm. And they studied all the people at McKinsey to figure out who is the most successful? Who are the people that just really skyrocketed, became partners the fastest, had the highest impact career either within within McKinsey or after they left. And they actually, and they looked at like what birth order you were in, what part of the country you were born in, your parents' IQ, all these things, what boarding school you went to, whatever. And they actually found that the best determinant of who was the most successful was how many times you failed. Wow. In other words, that failing multiple times didn't deter you from getting back up and trying again. And so I think that was like a powerful lesson for me. I heard that talk somewhere in my journey and sort of it emboldened me to kind of get back up, but it also exposed something that I don't think we teach well enough and that we really should is learning how to own your failures Mm -hmm. and bring that into your narrative. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anybody who's like, Hey, when I'm applying for my first faculty job on my resume, I want failed boards. I want (laughs) non-matching. I want like broken off relationship. I don't think anybody like wants those things, but I think the art that like we don't teach is like, how do you like own those things, Mm. bring them into your story and learn how to understand yourself and tell your story in a way that makes those like supernatural and makes those like, Actually, that's partly why we like Andrew so much. We like Andrew so much because of those failures and what he learned from them and how he bounced back. And so the person who taught me that was probably my current mentor, Justin Dimmick, who he loves narratives for like grant writing and how you make a great grant. But what I learned from him is he was actually teaching me how to do that for like my own life and my own self. And so those failures kind of opened up all these alternative pathways for my life that all of a sudden made it like, okay to work in an architecture firm, to make it okay to ask these weird questions and have a career that hadn't been done before. So if there's anything I'd love your listeners to know is like, just like own your story and think, spend some time to really think about what is your narrative and how can you bring all parts of yourself, the good and the bad into that narrative in a trajectory that makes you have impact to the work you care about. And it, I think these failures help build re- resiliency in us. And that resiliency is so needed in our paths to become a physician working during the pandemic. And I think your narrative, your journey really embodies that. There's one more thing I forgot to hit on was I, I think you have, we're just one of the most creative minds as a researcher and a physician and what I love is this thing called visual abstract that you oh created. Oh my goodness. And it really has revolutionized medical research, the presentation of medical research. So yeah. for those of you who don't know about the visual abstract, 
Can you explain how that came about and what impact has it had upon medical research? Yeah, in a nerdy fashion, when I finished my fellowship, I actually framed a visual abstract and signed it. So that's actually what's up there on the wall. So cool. The visual abstract is interesting. So when you read a research article, there's sometimes two to 3,000 words. And you might not have time to read that whole article. And so there's an abstract at the front, which is the two, 300 word summary of that article that you could read like in a minute. And the goal of an abstract is to essentially give you a summary to let the reader know, is this an article I want to go read? Is this a topic I'm interested in? Is this the data set of the outcomes? And when we started timing people, we found that you could read an abstract in maybe like a minute. And I thought, well, there's 10 articles I want to sift through, or maybe 15 articles. That could take me a long time just to find the one article I want to read. And so when I got into sort of like visual display of data and kind of bring my design work into my research, I thought, like, wouldn't it be great if you could summarize the abstract of an article visually that people could read a lot faster? And so the format that's up there is kind of this three-pane window that you could read the main points of a research article in about six to eight seconds. Mm. So all of a sudden you could very quickly find the research that you care about and find the articles that you want to read. So in true nerdy fashion, this wasn't just about good design or about aesthetics or that it looked good. I wanted to know, like, did it work? Like, do people actually go read research articles more because they saw a visual abstract? So we randomized it into a trial. We took 44 original research articles, half got disseminated as a visual abstract, half as text alone. Then we waited a four week washout period and shared the articles in the opposite format. So it was like a crossover trial. And then we compared them head to head and found that reproducibly, we could get articles read two to three times more just by including a visual abstract when they were shared. So it's now been adopted by over a hundred journals throughout the world, including uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, the CDC, JAMA, um, and BMJ and a number of other journals. And I think what's most exciting to me as someone who's a researcher, we spend tons of time on this work, is that it engages more people in your work. And I think the more people that read good evidence, like the better it is for everyone. And so I've totally open sourced kind of all the templates and resources and guides for how to do it. And so if anyone is interested in it, if you go to surgeryredesign.com, there's an open source PDF primer uh, that's now in its fourth edition. It kind of has all the nuts and bolts. And it's just so gratifying and fun to see like another journal pick it up. Because ultimately, if people have good ideas, like more people should know about it. Mm -hmm. If this is a more effective way to get good ideas out there, then like I want to see it disseminate. You are such a geek. I love it. You actually did a randomized control trial on graphic design. That's right. It is, it's, it's incredible. That's like, some serious, serious nerdiness coming to full I, swing. I, I think the visual abstract just embodies your creative design mind with your researcher mind and what and shows what impact that it could have in medicine. Yeah. I mean, I'd love, and the goal really is to try to bring that same spirit to the design work we do in architecture. How many architecture randomized trials do you know about? Mm. I don't know of many. And I think a lot of people would be naysayers to say like, ah, it's not possible. But if you asked five years ago, 
how many graphic design randomized trials are there? There probably weren't many either, but like <laughs> there's a way to do it and we can figure it out if we get more designers trained in our empirical methods. So I'm excited about that. I think one of the other nerdy things that we haven't talked about yet that I'd love about working at HOK is only about 25% of HOK's practice is healthcare. Mm. And the other 75% is something else. And it's high impact, whether it's stadiums like Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta, where the Super Bowl was a couple of years ago, LaGuardia's airport, Whoa. Chicago Hare's airport. They designed the all those. The British Museum in London, we just wow. did a renovation of Canadians Parliament in Ottawa. And so it's fascinating. You're Giardelli Square in San Francisco, tons of cool landmark mm-hmm. places that we've designed. And part of what has been fascinating to me is when I joined HOK at first, it was like the hospital people who wanted to talk to me. Mm-hmm. But then after word got around that I was in the firm, then like the airport people wanted to talk to me and said, how do you bring some of those health concepts into airports? And then the stadium people mm-hmm. said, how do you design like a healthy stadium? Or how do you use this huge public infrastructure investment as an opportunity to influence the health of an entire community? And so that's been like one of the biggest joys recently is just understanding and discovering ways to export our skills and other domains of design. And I think it's been one of the most kind of rewarding parts about being at this interface. That's amazing. Andrew, it's always a joy to talk to you, brother. I appreciate you being on Design Joy to Lab. talk to you, my friend. Let me geek out about Bond for a second. I, <laughs> I have like, I have, I, have, I have some thoughts about why I love Bond so much besides he's fun to hang out with and he's a cool dude. And I think, I think a lot of your audience are people who are either on the design side, who maybe are interested in health or on the health side, interested in the design side. And I think it's one thing to say like, all right, I'm a healthcare provider and I think design's cool. I got mm-hmm. cool design ideas and I want to hang out with designers. I think that's like great. But what I think stratifies someone like you, Bon, and what's made you so successful, and I hope other people follow, is you go a step further and you say, I'm going to learn as much about design as possible. I'm going to get deep into a lab. I'm going to 3D print. I'm going to try to prototype stuff. I'm going to go try to bring a product to market. And it's not that you're going to be an expert who can do all those things. But if you start collaborating with designers, and you start to get deep into design, you're such a better collaborator. And so whatever side you're on, the design side or the healthcare side or whatever, and you want to start collaborating, I think just like digging your teeth in a little more and learning about that other side. So if you're a designer and you say, hey, I really want to change healthcare, well then go read about the Affordable Care Act. Go read about public health principles. Go read the basic measurement concepts of econometrics and difference and differences and hierarchical models. You probably won't be able to master those, but if you even knew 20% about any of those, you'll be so much more valuable to collaborators on that side. And so I've always admired that about you, Bond, because you always... You don't just have an idea, you go like deep into that profession in that space and learn as much about it as you can. And I think that's why it makes you such an attractive collaborator. Thanks brother. And you've always been inspiring me and you continue to inspire me. I appreciate you, man. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Ibrahim. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram and check out his website, surgeryredesign.com. 
And now I'm joined by Rob, who's the producer of Design Lab. Rob is the behind the scenes guy doing all the work to make this podcast happen. Hey, Bon, I love the comments from folks who've been listening to the show. Thank you so much. We love making this show. Uh, we love talking with really cool people, and we're so happy that you're out there listening. It's so good. We, we read everyone, and they give us a little bit of joy and motivation to continue doing this podcast. It's a labor of love for us, so keep those comments coming. Definitely. Keeps our energy up. Who do we have next week for us? So I'm really excited for next week. We have Rachel Dekas. She is a social cool. worker who uses design thinking and social work. And she actually started something called Social Workers Who Design. What? Merging design thinking with social work? Sounds right up our alley. Can't wait to have her on. Pretty cool, right? Awesome, man. It's going to be a good week next week. Yeah, so join us next week for that. We are always trying to make this show better. So if you have feedback or want to drop us a line, DM me at Twitter at B-O-N-K-U. Or you can DM me on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And don't forget to support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.